Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe and internationally. Hello, this is Stephen Adams, GC Senior Director in London. Uh, Today I'm going to be talking with uh, GC Practice Lead for Energy, uh, Matt Doohan. Matt, you spend a lot of time thinking and writing about energy policy, and that means thinking and writing about renewables policy and the carbon transition. And you've just published a blog on the GC site, which looks at the Green New Deal. And your point of departure in the blog is a resolution uh, tabled by um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which you say is going to fail, but which is nevertheless probably something of a game-changer in American climate politics. Um, you say in your blog the, the Green New Deal isn't a program for government, it's a political statement. So explain what you mean by that. Sure. Okay, so, um, I mean, just to pick up on the point of failure, I mean, it, it, it presupposes, to say it's going to be a failure presupposes that the intention is that it'll pass in either the House of Representatives or the Senate. And just as a sort of side note, we're now actually going to see it come to the floor in the Senate, uh, where Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey has, has proposed it, uh, which is really just a Republican gambit to try and make the Democrats vote one way or the other on it. I mean, in, in terms of uh, what is it for, I think, is the question. And if you look at the content of the, the resolution, it's a very, very ambitious list of, uh, on the one hand, climate goals, and then almost kind of... In, by way of passing a whole set of broader challenges on social and economic policy. But just give us some examples there. Sure. So um, on the kind of climate side of things, uh, it includes a target for uh, the US to go net uh, emissions, net, sorry, net zero emissions by 2050, uh, for the whole of the US power system to go low or zero carbon in the next 10 years, uh, to essentially revamp the entire existing building stock to make it more energy efficient, to overhaul the, overhaul the transport system. Uh, there's stuff in there about agriculture. I mean, it it's, it's really is the laundry list. And, and you're implying there that on a spectrum that's way ahead of anyone else in the OECD? or Well, yes and no. So parts of it, I mean, for example, the EU is talking about setting a net zero emissions target for 2050. So that in itself is not kind of completely outside of the realms. But within the US political debate, it's certainly trying to move, and we can come on to talk about this, it's certainly trying to move the bar for what counts as ambitious climate ambition. The, the second point, I guess, is that in some of those areas, actually, that is way ahead of anything that anybody's really talking about, uh, at least on the timescale that this sets out. So the, the Green New Deal calls for a 10-year mobilisation. Uh, and mobilisation there, I think, is a kind of quite interesting word because it conjures up Images of the original New Deal and you know using the forces of the state to mobilise all aspects of economy and, and society and war, right. and war absolutely and presumably uh, for a prescription this ambitious the diagnosis is very much the worst case diagnosis that's been provided by the UNIPC and uh, climate science yeah I, I mean I think one of the things that that Ocasio-Cortez is trying to do is to try and identify the mismatch between what the climate science is telling us is required to to limit climate change to a 1.5 degree rise and what is actually happening on the ground. And, you know, when when you think about, there are lots of political reasons that she and the supporters of the Green New Deal are putting this forward, but fundamentally a kind of technocratic approach to climate policy is, is not doing the job. 
Right, and so her answer is a much, much greater mobilization. Now, the point you make in your blog is that this is potentially a dilemma for companies that are in the process of uh, trying to define their own activism on climate. So explain why that is. Sure. So on the one hand, it looks like something of an opportunity. And for some corporates who are really in the vanguard of climate activism, that, that might be true. But the, the reason that I was setting out that I, I think it's a dilemma has kind of two parts to it. The first one is, is simply that the ambition of the Green New Deal is explicitly setting, explicitly attempting to reset the bar for what climate ambition looks like. So, you know, if you're a corporate and you have your CSR strategy that includes a whole set of, you know, emissions targets or your waste policy or the efficiency of your buildings, all those sorts of things, you know, in a, in a context where ambition is low, you look very progressive. In a context where ambition is very high, well, actually, suddenly you don't look quite so impressive. So the first point there to make is that actually it kind of resets the bar for people who want to, for corporates who want to set themselves out and set their brand as being progressive and ambitious on climate policy. But the second and perhaps more problematic uh, question for businesses is the extent to which the Green New Deal allies a kind of climate ambition with a broader program of economic and, in fact, societal transformation. Right, you say in your blog that uh, Ocasio-Cortez sees uh, the challenge of tackling climate change as the other side, or exactly what you say is tackling climate change and tackling the dominant economic system are two sides of the same late capitalist coin. Sure. So, um, well, exactly. And I, I think that's... that is one of the things that she, that she is trying to do. And it's interesting when you look at other people like, say, Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is probably coming at this the other way around. So he is he has kind of endorsed the Green New Deal, but really he's a kind of socialist figure trying to wrap in the climate agenda, whereas Ocasio-Cortez is arguably trying to use the climate agenda to wrap in socialism. But the point, the point being that, that combining the two of them, that association is possibly problematic because... The question for corporates is, does it mean that if you back the climate ambition of the Green New Deal, that you're also uh, either implicitly or explicitly endorsing this broader question of um, you know, economic transformation? And there's a question of, A, how would your customers feel about that? B, how your employees would feel about that? But probably most problematic, how would your shareholders feel about that? Right. And in a, in a political economy like the US where certainly by European standards or the standards of the European right and centre right, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot more entrenched climate scepticism on the American right. Yeah. What, what, what does this imply for that dynamic? Presumably this makes it not only harder for, uh, for, for, uh, for, for, for US centre right moderates to get on the climate change bandwagon, but it's also presumably an enormous target for a public climate sceptic like President Trump. Sure. I mean, the first thing to say is that it, it makes it difficult for moderate Democrats to get on board. And so figures like Nancy Pelosi have, have been pretty sniffy about the Green New Deal, although has had well, slightly... They've got, they've got in line. They have got in line subsequently, yeah. And, and if you look at the, the kind of range of presidential or candidates for the nomination on the Democratic side, there's an endorsement from a lot of the, the kind of big figures, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, as well as people like Bernie Sanders. But on, on the... On your point about the, the Republicans or people on the centre-right, I think that there is definitely a risk here, and, and I would imagine this is a calculated gamble, that the repoliticization of climate, uh, in some senses, you know, it looks like a kind of obvious thing to do. As I said, a sort of technocratic approach has 
is not getting policy to where it needs to be. However, it does really make it quite difficult to kind of reach across the, the political divide to find common ground on this. And in some senses, that is you know, quite specific to a US context, because if you look at, at European countries, it's generally been seen now there's broad based acceptance of the climate science It's a kind of technocratic problem to be solved. Whereas in the US, often it just falls into a statement of ideological beliefs. Right. So, I mean, this enables, uh, you know, a, a campaign or a permanent political campaigner like President Trump very much to hang the label of socialism on this. It struck me that one of the other things that Trump has, has done on, on climate change policy is to try and, um, and dress up the environmental agenda essentially as a, as a, as a boutique problem um, in which political elites make big decisions about the way we have to live in the knowledge that they won't be subject necessarily to every ramification of their own choices. Now, it strikes me as interesting, um, and you pointed this out the other day, that the Green New Deal includes a lot, not just on the creation of green jobs, but on the, 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 the quality of those jobs. Um, do you think, is that an attempt to kind of avoid this being labelled essentially as, a, uh, you know, as an elite project that ignores the kind of grassroots impact? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you if you think about uh, Trump, for example, and his attitude towards the coal industry, that's exactly the sort of position that he took. So this was, this was you know, nasty Hillary Clinton and her elite uh, East Coast mates coming to ch- take your jobs away. I think clearly, you know, the, the Green New Deal package is trying to get around that problem and trying to position this as an economic agenda that's going to benefit those in the kind of, you know, in the US sense, middle classes, which is a pretty broad uh, spectrum, uh, as well as tackling the climate change issue. Now, the extent to which they're going to be um, successful in selling that message, I think, is still kind of an open question. But, but certainly, a, you know, I think it's quite a smart political move in that sense to try and repackage it as, as not an elite issue, but one that's kind of got that should have popular support. Right. I mean, let, let's just come back to the question of ambition again, because I mean, obviously, ambition is all very well. And um, Ocasio-Cortez invokes the concept of the moonshot, as ambitious policymakers often Mm -hmm. do. But of course, we need to remember that the reason why we talk about moonshots is because we got to the moon. Um, If you don't, then then surely there's a risk that in setting the bar this high, in characterising this as an agenda which needs this kind of urgency and dramatic, radical, transformational shift, if it's perceived to fail, or if it's perceived to be unsavable or unrealistic, what, what does this actually mean for climate politics and climate policy more generally? Sure. So, I, well, there's an interesting debate ongoing in, in the kind of climate community about the role for catastrophism uh, and the, the question of whether, you know, pictures of a kind of the uninhabitable earth, uh, you know, the, the kind of nightmare scenarios are helpful or a hindrance and you know there's a lot of different views on that for example David Attenborough basically said I don't think this is very helpful when he got he became under criticism for not being not painting a kind of dark enough picture of the future um I mean I would say one thing on the moonshot is that with going to the moon we were either going to get there or we weren't going to get there climate policy is not like that it's not like are we solve it or we don't solve it so to the extent to which you fail or don't fail, it's actually a spectrum. So we might not make it 
to the kind of transformation that's set out in the Green New Deal. However, making it halfway there is still better than not making it right there at all. In the blog, you say that 2020 is an all-or-nothing election for federal yeah. climate policy. And your view seems to be that that's one of the reasons why uh, you know, a political campaigner like Ocasio-Cortez is essentially willing to set the ambition this high. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it goes back to this risk about uh, if, if you politicise climate action in this way, then it, what does it mean for the, for the ability or the, the willingness of people on the other side of the aisle to get on board? I mean, that risk is kind of dissolved by the view that, well, if you, if you lose the election, it kind of doesn't matter. You know, if Trump, if Trump is in for another four years, then federal climate policy is only going, well, stalling or going backwards. Um, so in that sense, you might as well take the risk. Because if you win, then you need to maximise the amount of movement that you can get. So, you know, the Green New Deal is an attempt to set the agenda early on within the Democratic Party to make sure that whoever wins the nomination has basically set out their stall in a much more climate-ambitious fashion than, than they might have done otherwise. Right. But that seems pretty much uh, a dead cert now. If you look at the field, uh, yeah. I mean, this is very much setting the bar for, for everyone on the Democratic side. And, but just, just one final point on that. I mean, it, it'll be an interesting component of the, of the classic... Uh, presidential nominee problem of tacking back towards the centre. It'll be really interesting to see whoever eventually wins the nomination, the extent to which actually they try and walk back a bit on the Green New Deal, where it is they choose to try and do that, the extent to which they try and actually separate it out from some of the kind of more radical economic stuff, or whether they continue to see it as one, you know, one plank of their campaign. Right. Uh, so that's the, that's the US context. You spend an awful lot of time working on uh, decarbonisation policy in the EU and in Europe and in the UK. Yeah. Um, to what extent does this shape the debate on the other side of the Atlantic? To what extent do you think there are transferable lessons or insights for climate policy and climate policy activists on the London side of the Atlantic? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's interesting. The, the, um, the German Green Party, for example, we're talking about a Green New Deal in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis. So there is, in some senses, a kind of history of this in Europe. But the, the most interesting case study, I think, is in the UK, where the Corbyn Labour Party uh, is clearly um, both very focused on learning some of the lessons from the, the democratic socialists, as the left wing of the Democratic Party call themselves. Uh, there are clearly links being made there. And one of the areas that I think that is going to happen is around this idea of trying to bring together economic transformation and then ambitious climate and renewables policy. So the Corbyn Labour Party have been talking about the green jobs revolution for a little while now. And I think um, it was interesting, certainly in the last 12 months, the leadership, so Jeremy Corbyn himself, John McDonnell, uh, and also Rebecca Long-Bailey, who's the, who's the relevant shadow minister, seem to be much more focused now on climate policy, specifically as a way in which that they can outflank the Conservatives on issues that matter to their base, which is kind of similar, I guess, the UK equivalent of those who support uh, Ocasio-Cortez. So I, I think this is a very interesting area for businesses in the UK to watch, to see how in the sort of uh, run-up to the 2020 election in the States this plays out, how American businesses manage this, how they handle uh, where they position themselves relative to this more ambitious agenda, the sort of um, obstacles they come up against from customers and shareholders. And they may have to start thinking, OK, what are the lessons to be learned here? Because this sort of agenda, I think, could really gain some traction in the UK as well. OK, so I'm going to put you on the spot to finish. You're the sustainability director of a large multinational. You're watching, <laughs> you're watching this play out. What are you thinking? <laughs> 
in the US context, I would be I would be pretty nervous about backing the Green New Deal. Right. You can read Matt's blog <laughs> on the Global Council website, which is www.global-council.co.uk. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.co.uk and subscribe to our mailing list. You can also follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.